0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Prairie Farm Podcast. Nicholas here. And we've got a little bit of a different one for you. So this past weekend, we were at Pheasant Fest. It's Pheasant Forever and Quail Forever's large national conference they do every year. It was in Minneapolis this year, and we had a booth, and it was awesome. If you've never heard of it, check it out. They rotate throughout the year, so they might be coming to a place near you in the future. But while we were there, we set up a mic and asked people, hey, what are the best hunting bird dogs what is the best habitat for upland birds and how do you make a good food plot for upland birds and we had people answer these questions now granted some of them were children some of them had tons of education some of them had no education But we wanted to give them a chance to voice their opinion and their experience. And wait till the end because we have Sierra Rhodes, a farm bill biologist from Arkansas, who actually gives really, really good insight on how to create habitat and food plots for Upland birds. Enjoy in three, two, one.
1: This is Sierra Rhodes, I'm a Senior Farm Bill Biologist in Arkansas with Quail Forever and this is the Prairie Farm Podcast.
2: Ed Erickson, Autumn Breeze Kennel. I've been training bird dogs for 24 years. In my opinion, the best bird dog knows is the Brocco Italiano. i trained 24 different breeds to date, second best is the German Shorthair. and FDA is follow dog's ass that's what everybody asks what should I do the dog knows where the birds are the Brocco has the best nose they're not the great water dog the German Shorthair is a good water dog and the breedings on all these dogs have gotten a lot better in the last 30 years thanks to testing and good quality breeding the lab is the best because it will point and it will flush and retrieve
0: The Dashing Bondu Llewellyn Satter, one of the most uh, foot dogs out there. Elver Layton, the Druth Drothar, because the intensity of the hunt is what makes it special. We're the Murphys, and we're going to say the GSP.
1: Is the best dog breed And I guess I would say is because they do have an on and off switch. They are hardcore hunting and lovable family oriented dog at home. British
2: Lab, smarter, smaller, more aggressive, and a better family dog. David Studi, Uh, Labradoodle I heard was exceptional for home use and home pets, and also they are trained in a really diverse way to be able to retrieve and to be able to point successfully.
0: Hi, I'm Mary Surma, and the best breed out there is a Springer Spaniel field bred. Reason being is because they love to jump, they love to hunt, and they love to cuddle at night.
2: Matt Mosier, and uh, I prefer the uh, Labrador Retriever as the best bird dog uh, because they're the most versatile and can do just about anything you want them to do. Mason Smith, I believe the best dog out there is a Labrador. They're very versatile and a good family dog. Joel Wenner, either a yellow or black Lab. The reason, they flush the
0: birds, they get up, they come down, they fly, they die.
2: That's it. Okay, name is Ron. We've got two Springer Spaniels, and they are
0: definitely the best bird dog there is.
1: My name is Laurie Kapischke, and I like a Springer Lab Cross Mixed Dog. Okay,
2: my name's Charlie Brynack. Uh, the best bird dog breed is a wire-haired Vichla. Uh Phenomenal temperament, uh, very easy to work with, extremely loyal. They hunt very hard, and they're great in the house.
0: German shore here. Versatile. My name is Adam.
2: Uh, my favorite dog is the Poodle Pointer. Uh, they're a great versatile breed, and they got an off switch at home.
0: My name's Ed. The best dogs there is are
2: labs because they're workers in the field and they are great companions at home. My name is Paul Anderson, and I think the very best breed of bird dog to hunt with are the ones that you spent your time and effort, your vet and feed bills, and all your hopes that you've put into this dog. That is unequivocally the very best breed of bird dog. Lucas Felling and Llewellyn Sutters are the best because they're the cutest.
0: <laughs> David Bornhoffen, Labrador Retriever, versatile. The versatility, early season, late season, cold, warm, they do it all.
2: My name is Tony Snyder. Um, I'm a bird dog enthusiast. I've had had and raised dogs for thirty years or more, and the best bird dog would be the
0: bird the dog that fits your personality and style of hunting Uh, but when I say bird dog I think
2: of pointers and flushers not retrievers so I, I would take retrievers out of that category because I don't consider
0: them I classify them as indifferent in my opinion Not that they're not still one of the best, because they are. But a bird dog, if I was was picking,
2: I'm picking an English pointer. But that's me.
0: All right, so my name is Bill Hogue, and I'm from Minnesota. And um, I have a
2: a strong opinion on the best cover for pheasants is uh, variety.
0: right. So you need need nesting cover, and, and you need food. And so tall grass prairie combined with... Um, some kind of a clover or alfalfa
2: or something that comes up where they can eat it and the little baby bugs um, are there for them when they first hatch because if you don't have take care of those chicks when they first hatch you're not going to have a healthy flock of pheasants
0: Bryson Luterman so a diverse blend of natural grasses depending on the area and forbs
1: Gabe Yenish and I think cattails E R I K
2: M E A D E, grass and hay.
0: Rob Petzold from Minneapolis, Minnesota. I would say a cattail slough next to a giant food plot of sorghum. Birds got good cover and then they can eat. Andre Xiong, uh, I'm going to guess blue stem grass. I think you have to put time in, I think you need rain, and I think you need the proper seeds. Brandon and McKinnon, how do you build a healthy food plot for upland birds? Probably you're gonna need to clear some brush and put some seed down and i don't I don't know <laughs> that's all I got <laughs> Kent Kaiser and a good food plot for upland birds would be. Uh, made by
2: cutting down the big trees and propping up
0: the new brush. Do I answer the question now? Uh, CRP uh, because it's tall and it keeps keeps them warm in the winter. It's just a good bedding area.
1: How do you build a healthy food plot for birds, for land birds? Well, you could try by sharing your food with them, but not like just scaring them away because they do need food and they can't always hunt because then they're also hunted.
0: name's Eric McKinney. Um, as to how to build a healthy food plot for upland game, I would imagine um, lots of uh, undergrowth. I feel like your, your base forage of small insects is going to be a big thing. Um, I haven't done a ton with upland game. Habitat, but as with any uh, biological system, it's a kind of a bottom up type thing. You have to buy Hoxie native seeds. Well, I mean, grouse and stuff, what do they eat? They probably eat like wheat seeds. I don't know anything about grouse. I'm gonna have to pass that one to my wife. She knows the birds or like pheasants because it's pheasant fest. <laughs> no, other pheasants. <laughs> I don't think that's going to be usable.
1: Hey all I'm Sierra Rhodes. I'm a senior farm bill biologist with Quell Forever down in Arkansas. And uh, the question of the day was, how do you build a healthy food plot for upland birds? Uh, Well, I'm going to tell you my answer, and it is to either plant natives or to promote the native seed bank that you've got already. Uh, what happens is, is, with those natives, they are they provide a bunch of cover with those native grasses for nesting and just uh, for cover from predators, and also a um, diverse seed bank for a food source. So usually, the more diverse, the better. Uh, our Seed mixes down in Arkansas contain somewhere close to 60 different species of forbs and grasses, Um, but you're really just looking for that food source for them to have brood rearing cover, as well as that uh, bare ground component as well, so they're able to walk around in there, but that's my answer for the healthy food plot.
2: Well, we are here at Pheasant Fest 2023 here in Minneapolis. I'm a little brain fried. I've talked to probably... I don't know maybe a thousand plus people now which is good. I'm a I'm a people person and I'm joined today by Sierra Rhodes of Quail Forever who is a natural communicator. Uh, she spends probably most of her time out away from people, out in the field. Uh, she's a she's a boots-on-the-ground kind of person. I uh, got that from her talk over here at the Habitat stage. Uh, but she did such a nice job that Nick and I wanted to get her on the podcast, talk a little bit about quail. So, Sierra, thank you so much for joining in.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
2: Yeah. So did you have to drive all the way up from Arkansas, or did oh, you guys no. fly?
1: <laughs> no, no. That's good. I uh, I've, I've driven up here. Once or twice before, and I will fly from now on out. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, especially this time of year. Exactly. A, we had to leave a day early, Nick and I did, because we were gonna get hit with snow like on the day that we were supposed to leave. So we've been here for a while. <laughs> yeah, but... we don't
1: get a ton of that snow down in Arkansas. <laughs> <laughs> that's
2: right. That's right. I did see though that one storm hit Arkansas this winter. Yeah. Right?
1: Apparently, in like northwest Arkansas, got like 15 to 16 inches of snow that's a crazy. couple weeks ago. <laughs>
2: does Does life shut down when you? Oh, 100.
1: Get... There's <laughs> no one on the roads. Uh, snow no plows maybe going down the road you get like one per every four counties maybe <laughs>
2: <laughs> no salt probably for uh, ice or anything like that well,
1: we we get salt uh but it's not i don't think near to the extent that you guys do up yeah, north yeah
2: <laughs> yeah our cars get eaten alive by the salt up here <laughs> Uh, but no it's been great to be in minnesota it's our neighbor to the north nick and me we're talking here and uh unfortunately nick's doing other stuff right now so he can't jump in on this episode but uh just want to talk a little bit more about arkansas you're called the natural state Mm -hmm. um i remember back in grade school when the state quarters came out you know i'd be collecting those uh diamonds Mm -hmm. where there was a giant diamond on the back of uh, the Arkansas quarter. Yeah. And that's probably a little known fact, I would say, about Arkansas, right, that you guys have an area there where people find diamonds?
1: Yeah, there's a state park down in, I believe it's southwest Arkansas. I've actually been wanting to get there myself. and uh, you <laughs> Do can a just, little go, digging? Yeah, yeah I just like, maybe I'll find a diamond. <laughs> yeah. maybe, I'll, maybe I'll strike it rich. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, you can go mine for diamonds. Some lady the other day on Facebook, I saw she found, like, a two-carat diamond out there. Whoa.
2: Yeah. That's that's, <laughs> that's a nice little nest egg there. <laughs> we, were, we were talking uh, with some of our people that have come up to our booth, and they ask about, you know, how did we get into growing prairie seeds? And then when you tell them how much per pound some of the seed is worth, uh, that that makes for a nice little nest egg too. That's an Iowa diamond, but <laughs> but you have so you have diamonds. You also have uh, I guess we they technically be a couple mountain ranges, right? The Ozarks and yeah. the Washtaws. Exactly. Did I pronounce that correctly? By the you way, you did,
1: you did. Are you're
2: glad Harder I didn't say itas or something <laughs> like that? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, the the Washita Mountain Range and uh, just a great outdoor state. The natural state really fits, and then mm-hmm. of course some lakes. Yeah, it's and, a beautiful
1: state. You've got everything from the prairie down in the delta lots of uh, you know row crop agriculture going on down there Mm. to kind of more a little more rolling uh hills down in the southeastern southwestern coastal plains and then you kind of start getting up on into the washita's over in western arkansas and the ozarks all across the north beautiful beautiful very diverse very Mm.
2: diverse that's good that's what we love that's uh, a diverse landscape is good iowa we have a little diversity but um not near near to that extent we have a lot of farmland and uh we got some glacial lakes up in the northwest and uh you know uh we're, we're the only state bookended by the two big rivers the missouri on our west and the mississippi on our east Very but cool. uh we share the mississippi with you guys mm-hmm. so yeah that's that's really cool though to to just see that difference between our two landscapes It is so, insane. <laughs> so you're here for quail forever more than pheasants forever uh, yeah, we're
1: sister organizations. Right, uh, right. My check says Pheasants Forever. On <laughs> <it>. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: But they they merged. When was that? Like 2000
1: 2005 is when they decided to start Quail Forever sure. and kind of break out and do their own thing to kind of expand expand their range because they saw such a decline in the quail population mm. down south and we don't have pheasants down south, so that's why right. Pheasants Forever, you know, isn't as much of a name that we hear down there. And uh, so we stick with quell forever down there. There are a bunch of states, though, that have both, So, you know, they just say pheasants forever, quell forever so fast. Sometimes you can't understand Yeah, right, them. right, <laughs> right, yep, yep.
2: Well, what's interesting is, you know, and, and I love pheasants. Pheasants are great. And what what's, I mean, pheasants are on our logo, right? And we get some <laughs> we get some uh, flack for that sometimes because they're not native to the, and we're a native seed company. Um, but they've been able to hack it in a niche that's that were truly a niche that has never existed before Mm -hmm. you know it's uh, some people think that they took over for the prairie chicken well things are so different from when the prairie chicken was here that even if you were to bring all those prairie chickens back they wouldn't make it you know Mm -hmm. we need a lot more prairie than what we have now we need you know that natural lek space for them that they have and whereas pheasants they just they, they can handle what we have better, and, and that's better than nothing for sure, and certainly a lot more than that even. Yeah. But quail, they kind of get overshadowed by by pheasants. And, uh, you know, interesting thing talking about Iowa is uh, southern Iowa is the historical northernmost range for bob whites. And uh, so they're native to my state, certainly native to Arkansas, but they just don't get the attention that pheasants do in our country for some reason. And, I think uh, it's the tail feather thing. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I think so. Probably, yep. They don't have that big stream, or they don't have the iridescent color and all that. But they're really cool.
1: Yeah, I mean they're cool birds. They're definitely fun to hunt. Um, quail, quail to me are just they're so cute. They're they're yeah. these little adorable gentleman looking birds, and <laughs> I don't know how else to explain them. They're just they're they're great. There's also, you know, if when you come into the wildlife world, um, there's a lot of people who you know hate the deer guys or hate the turkey guys yeah, or girls yep. or whatever and um but you can't ever find anyone who hates a quail no one yeah that's and true that everyone loves them so i do enjoy working with quail for that specific reason you never make a make an enemy there <laughs> that's
2: right that's true i never thought of it that way in fact most people will tell a story of, oh yeah we were pheasant hunting and uh, sure enough we busted a qu- heavy of quail you know yeah where yeah there's that competition between the other species that's a good point <laughs> So one of the things they talk about, so I'm friends with a state upland biologist here in Iowa, uh, Todd Bogenschutz, and uh, I've, in a previous conversation, talked about quail with him before, and he, he explained to me the importance of hedgerows that were used in ag practices here in the Midwest in the past. In fact, that extended that northern range of bob whites all the way up to where we are now, into Minneapolis, and then in the 70s, 80s, 90s, farmers started taking out Those hedgerows, and sure enough, you know the quail dried up with it. Mm -hmm. Down in Arkansas, though, that's a different story. That's not they're they're much more native, established. I mean, that's where they belong, Mm -hmm. and uh, so they didn't depend on some you know farming practice for them to be there in the first place. But they're not doing well there either, right?
1: No, so they uh, hedgerows do play a big part in their habitat, just what they need. So um, back. I don't know, probably 70s, 80s or so, Arkansas culture included prescribed burning across mm. the state. That wasn't just in the Delta. That was up in the mountain ranges everywhere. Really? And so everyone was still prescribed burning. I've still got a lot of landowners to talk about them as kids going out with their grandfather and, you know, burning. And they're just mm. like, yeah, I remember doing that all the time, every year. Huh, and we cool. do a different section of the farm. And, I mean, queller are known as the firebird. They, they need that prescribed mm. fire to survive because it creates the habitat that they— that they need to survive, but quail really need three to four, I really say four different types of things, uh, for habitat. They need brood rearing habitat, which is usually like your lots of diverse native wildflowers, um, in order for them to be able to raise their chicks. The adults are eating the seeds off those wildflowers. Your chicks Mm -hmm. are eating the insects that are attracted to those seeds. Um, but you also need your, um, your, uh, a cover just um, like native warm season grasses sure. and stuff that's yep. just it's you know kind of run around and yeah that kind of thing. Yep. um you also need your escape cover which is those hedgerows you're talking about mm-hmm. in arkansas that can be anything from a briar patch uh that usually and for us we got a lot of blackberries um, that sure. can kind of grow up in that or um a lot of shrub plantings as well mm-hmm. is kind of what people are doing nowadays or just Um, We have a lot of like plum thickets that are native to our area. So, just trying to baby those and get those up and going. But that fourth component that I think a lot of people forget about is the bare ground component. So, they really need that bare ground in order to get around. There's actually some virtual reality goggles floating around here at Pheasant Fest. (laughs) I don't know if you ever got a chance to try them, but it kind of shows. Bird's eye view, you you know, no pun intended. Of you're kind of you're you're (laughs) acting (laughs) like a kind of the
2: reverse idea that normally (laughs) you're thinking up in the air. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. So
1: it shows you like the same size as a pheasant chick, and shows a video of you just kind of sitting around with a bunch of pheasant chicks, and they're eating. And it shows the grass growing overhead, but it shows that bare ground underneath and how they're able to get through there. If you get you know a sod growing grass like for us we're in the fescue build i don't know about how it is up in iowa but yep. uh, we have a lot of fescue growing not, for not pasture. a up,
2: not a ton up here we're more we're more alfalfa brome reed I, canary brome, kentucky yeah, blue bro
1: brome's another one though but it's it's a uh, it's got a it grows more in like a sod format so it okay. ends up deleting that uh bare ground component that you really need for sure. those quail chicks and i mean not just quail turkey pheasant chicks all those small animals that really need to to be able to get around in order to survive and get mm-hmm. to that food source that they need.
2: Right, right. No, that makes sense. So, so fire was such a huge part of maintaining those things. Fire kind of, for whatever reason, starts to come out of practice. And, Smokey the Bear. Yeah, yeah, Smokey <laughs> the Bear. Yeah. <laughs> he, they re- is that really what you think it is? Just the fear of forest fires? Well,
1: yeah. So Smokey the Bear came out, and and, um, and it, I think that the the way it was branded, uh, it not. For certain areas of the of the United States, 100% needed to happen, of course. But sure. uh, I think Smokey the Bear that that you know only you can stop wildf- or, mm-hmm. yeah, wildfires, wildfires, yeah. Um, forest fires. Um, they've since rebranded that to say only you can prevent wildfires yeah. and what it is is we always call it prescribed burning for a reason you're out yep. there with an intended purpose you've safely got your fire break set up you know which wind direction you got you know your weather weather conditions for the day and you're you know conducting a burn yeah. safely um, wildfires are ones that they happen with no intention in mind no safety in mind yep. and they're you know they wreak havoc all their own so yep. they're that, that message got sent out, that brand got sent out, and uh, you know, back a while back, and yeah. it kind of made people more scared of fire, more, you know, more fearful of fire. And then that cultural change started happening where people started – not burning anymore. Scared they're gonna that is so interesting. Burn their neighbors' houses down or whatever it may be. Also, a lot of people start suing each other. You know, just mm, yeah, that over, that culture yeah. thing start coming around where now Liability everyone's yeah, everything. people are more scared of doing stuff and afraid that they're gonna get sued for something. So sure. um, it depends on the state too. A lot of states are are doing great things with their, the laws to make sure that they're set up to protect the people who are burning as long as they're doing it safely and underneath that prescription. Um, but there are states that we're still working on that. Mm -hmm. Um, you know they make it a little bit harder for private landowners to burn on their own so
2: yeah that's fascinating i never would have thought of that and burning certainly does come with its risks but like sierra said you put in a right burn plan and you have that back burn going and if you if you have the resources to do so you can even wet down some of the edges or run a disc over your here in Iowa, well, we're not in Iowa now, but back <laughs> home in Iowa, if you're if you're uh, burning next to an ag field, which usually you are, you can always run a disc in those first few rows and kind of give yourself a dirt break there. But so it keeps out of the corn stubble and everything. We yeah. just, we grow a lot of ethanol in Iowa, so, <laughs> so it burns for a while if it gets in there. Yeah, That's so fascinating about that propaganda of Smokey the Bear. Right?
1: Yeah, and I mean we you talk to any wildlife biologist we love smokey the bear i mean he's cool we always want to get our pictures taken with him whenever we (laughs) see him places it's uh but that that message had to change in order to get that cultural norm back of trying to get people to prescribe burn again
2: sure no that makes a ton of sense um so people i think are starting to get the idea again i'm seeing more burning again ever than i did growing up But growing up i never saw people doing that (laughs) and then the last i don't know 10 years or so i've been seeing much more of it Present on the landscape, which is good. That's great. We do a lot of burning at Hoxie Native Seeds. You can go on uh, YouTube and see a video of that, where things got a little uh, interesting when we burned a uh, unharvested stand of Canlow switchgrass. <laughs> Some serious BTUs given off by that heat, but uh, <laughs> but uh, that was that was a, a a fun memory there. But really, an important thing, and one that when you when you participate in something difficult like that to make your habitat a little bit better. Uh you just feel so much more connected to it too, you know exactly that, you're, mm. you're you're you got that sweat equity in there, yeah. so <laughs> no it's critically important to be to be considering that uh another thing that so you talked about the food side of it a little bit, you mm. know a lot of times when especially hunters are looking to put in a native species to improve their habitat for their wildlife on their property they're thinking usually of like you know switchgrass big blue stem indian grass you know these thought these thick tall species of grass but you mentioned pollinators in there as well and uh, you know one of the things that drives me nuts a little bit is is uh people will look at seeds and they think oh why isn't that just free you know it's like <laughs> the, the, those flowers they cost a lot of money to grow harvest you know a lot of them uh this is coming from a guy who farms the stuff you got to harvest by hand you know it, yeah, there's a very lot hard of, to harvest from right it's, and it's hard to grow hard to clean them hard to keep them weed free and so then when you see that value in the price sheet on the on you know when you're looking to order your mix for your uh property you might say, eh, I don't think I'm going to go the pollinator route. It's too yeah. expensive. But mm-hmm. there's a lot of food value there, too, right? Oh,
1: yeah, very much so. Uh, down in Arkansas, we our biologists created um, like these highly diverse seed mixes for each of the ecoregions in okay, Arkansas, yep. like the ones I mentioned earlier today. And um, the these seed mixes are running. We try to keep them anywhere between $250 to $300 an acre sure. for, per seed mix, and that mm-hmm. um, that's like usually running about three to three and a half pounds an acre okay. when, uh, yep. for the mix and th- when I say diverse these are anywhere from 60 to 70 species in the mix too so yeah. um but we created them with the idea that some years some of these species are going to have to be left out and others yep. it'll be different ones just based off of how the flowers do that year right um so that's kind of how we approached it in Arkansas but um
2: yeah, diversity helps compensate for diverse complications. Well, right? yeah.
1: I mean, think about um, when I when I think about food and nutrition for an animal, I try and think about how humans need to eat too. So mm-hmm. it's a lot easier to connect with. But, I mean, say, for example, we're going to, I don't, do y'all guys have Golden Corrals up in Arkansas uh, or well, Iowa?
2: Yeah, we got a few <laughs> of them around still. So, yep. so
1: imagine you're going to the Golden Corral and you have to go to the Golden Corral every day, every meal. And- at the Golden Corral, if say it's a, a not very diverse place and all they have is mac and cheese on the on the buffet the yeah. entire time, um, yeah. for every single meal that would be like us going, you know, a quail going to a field and it just being all uh, switchgrass or something, yeah. you know, yeah. just for example, um, or cornflower I can't think of a flower, you know, invasive at the moment, but sure. <laughs> the, um, but that's you're not going to survive on that as a human. I mean. I love mac and cheese and yeah, I want to eat it a lot, but <laughs> that's not something that I can, my body can survive off right, of yeah, to make yeah. it from day to day. So there's different nutritional needs that you have to have. So you want a place that's going to have lots of things like the steak, the mac and cheese, the mashed potatoes, the okra, the, the great stuff that, yeah. that I mean, yeah, you want it to taste good, but you also need it to fulfill all those different nutrients that your body needs. Same thing for a quail or a pheasant. Yeah. I mean, you got to think about that when they're going to a field, they're not going and, and finding Every single little coneflower and eating just the coneflower. I mean, yeah. they're eating seeds from all these different plants. And so also you gotta think about for the chicks, that's just the adults eating the seeds. For those chicks, if you have one flower and it's the only flower you have out there and they're all the same species, most of the time flowers and insects have a very um, Tight bond. I don't really know how to sure, say it. Yeah. A lot of them are host plants for like one specific insect. So you're going to have a field full of the same flower. You're likely going to have a field full of the same insect. So same idea for those chicks. You need to to incorporate a lot of different flowers to attract a lot of different insects. So those chicks are getting a lot of different insects um, in their diet as well that are meeting all the all the needs nutritionally that they ha- yeah. have to have.
2: Yeah, yeah. That's so well said expertly explained there uh so you know as we wrap this one up so i recently started this job i've you know i would consider myself a conservationist for quite some time but i used to be a science teacher now i'm working the the seed farming business but uh when i first started our boss here sitting on the picture right next to me he uh you know i said something about yeah, it's easy to be a pessimist or whatever. He said, no, no, you got to be an optimist when you're in this business. So since then, it's totally changed my attitude, and I try to look at things glass half full all the time. And, and uh, so even though uh, when, when you're in the – another thing I say is when you're in the conservation business, you're always fighting from your back. But when we look at as tall as some of these challenges may be, as big of a fight as we may have, what is your optimistic, like, dream for the future of quail in Arkansas? Like, maybe some, we'll go 5, 10, 20-year hopes there for Arkansas.
1: I mean, what I would love to see is quail populations back to what they were in, like, say, the 70s. Uh, hmm. and, I so, mean, not back that to where, far ago. Yeah, no. I mean, it hasn't or been not not that long, long ago. ago. Yeah. And, um, I mean, back to where, I mean, they're huntable now, but they're, they're, very small pockets of where you have to go find quail, and you're sure. not busting coveys every hour by any means. Sure. So, um, I would love to have like a nice, fun, huntable population of quail back in the back in the state of Arkansas. Yeah. Um, and from what I understand, I believe that's the goal of most of our agencies there on mm-hmm. in our state wildlife action plan. Um, it's just something we dream about i mean we hear hear our grandparents talk about themselves quail hunting back in the day i mean they used to just you know get done with work for the for the afternoon and just take their shotgun their dog and just go walk out in the back field and go you know shoot their limit and have dinner kind of thing and it's that's not what it is right now but i that's that's my dream i mean i have no idea how long it's going to take to get there but what keeps me going are those landowner success stories that you heard me talking about on the habitat stage i mean we have to i all my landowners have my cell phone number usually, at, you know, for contacting for site visits and stuff. And I'll get text messages sometimes of pictures of like a new flower that they found that's yep. just now coming up and they want to learn what it is. And, or, you know, Hey, I saw a quail for the first time and I haven't seen a quail on my farm in 20 years. I mean, yeah. how exciting is yeah, that? That's, and so that's, that's, you get awesome. excited with them. So, uh, just trying to remember those small success stories and say, Hey, okay, now you've seen one quail on your, on your farm or, you know, like a small covey. like, yep. Hey, Let's get that carrying capacity up and let's start yep. seeing more coveys on your farm. Let's see what we can do to make more happen. And yeah. just find those little successes to give you a little boost and keep you going. And that's about all I know to do, I guess. No,
2: that's 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 very well said. The, you know, I think so much of the time, if you can just point to that physical evidence for that landowner, they can see the proof, mm-hmm. then they're bought in. And, <laughs> yeah, so pointing out those small successes and building off of them, building off of them. Then uh, you got you have a believer for life and 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 someone who's going to support good habitat restoration practices going forward.
1: You're right. Yeah, well, my goal is always to get the landowner excited. Even like sometimes they won't know what a milkweed plant looks like, and so after we do a planting, if they see me get excited about a plant and I like run around the field like a madman, saying, like, look at this milkweed and look at this flower, right. and see me get excited about it, then they get excited about it, and then they're willing to say more excited about it and want to do more. Yeah. So.
2: Yeah, that's, that's that's exactly right. Well, hey, Sierra, how can uh, people join Quail Forever if they're uh, listening from a Quail Forever area, which is technically everywhere, but <laughs> if you're down south, you're probably more interested in the quail and the pheasants, or you can join PF, Pheasants Forever as well. What's yeah, the best yeah. way for people to um, do that?
1: So if you're interested in joining, um, what I would do is go to quailforever.org and they there will be a spot down at the very bottom it'll say find a biologist or find a chapter um in order to join quell forever um you can look at find a chapter if there's one near you go get involved uh i just saw one of my chapter volunteers just walk by they're great people um they love to have some more help on you know getting these banquets together trying to raise money for for more habitat projects in the state and more biologists so we can get more habitat projects in the state um but if there's not a chapter near you, reach out to a biologist near you. We cover almost the whole state. Um, reach out to us and see what we can do to help you. And you know, we're always willing to to talk to people and and uh, share the share the message.
2: <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. So definitely join. Uh, do you have any like uh, Instagram or anything anyone listening can follow along with? See we what you're do, up to. We uh,
1: do. We have a a Facebook page called Quell Forever in Arkansas, and we have an Instagram, and I think it's. Quell forever or at Quell forever ar if I'm not mistaken or it's ar Quell forever I'm not an Instagram okay. person I'm kind sure, of sure, an old sure. soul yeah. but it's one of those two but the yeah, Facebook page is super fun uh, we always have Ford Fridays being posted and they very just good. did some cute days Valentine's Day cards that were adorable so That's yeah awesome.
2: <laughs> <laughs> very good well you heard it there make sure you tune in in all those ways join if you haven't. Uh, follow along on their facebook page and if you can track down the instagram page uh, we'll try and share those links along in the show notes of this episode Uh, so thank you so much sierra for joining in and as you've tuned in today as you've learned conservation whether it's in iowa or arkansas or here in minneapolis where we're at now it happens one yard at a time